and uh, not only physically, but we trust in its influence and impact for good as well. I'm going to read only one verse from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2. It has a context. I may just refer to the context. But there's a particular line in this verse that I want to talk to you about this morning. It says, For we also have had the truth preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Probably one of the reasons that you're here at Tyndale is to pursue truth. And one of the marks, of course, of our Christian convictions is that we don't just have a set of good ideas. We have something which is true, and it is true because of who says it to us in the Word of God, given to us by the Holy Spirit. But although that is probably a good reason why most of us are here, truth in itself doesn't do us any good. And this verse I just read says, we had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them. And who he's speaking about there, of course, as you may know from the context, you'll see it's very evident. He's talking about the children of Israel in their years in the wilderness. God, you remember, had intervened and brought them out of Egypt after many years of slavery and bondage. And this is a repeated story right through not just the Old but the New Testament because it is a beautiful picture, of course, of the Christian life. Coming out of bondage is a picture of coming out of our sin. The final straw that brought about their release, you remember, after the uh, plague sent against Egypt was the night God sent the angel of death to every Israelite home, to every Egyptian home, should I say. But that night, the Israelites didn't go to bed. They took a lamb, every family took a lamb, and they killed it, and they marked the doorposts of their homes with the blood of the lamb. And then they stayed up all night eating, having roasted the lamb, eating it with their coats on, their shoes on their feet, their belt around their waist, their staff in their hand, ready to run in the strength of the lamb the moment the word came, you're free. And it is, of course, a beautiful foreshadowing of Christ. It was John the Baptist who introduced Jesus to the world when he said this, Behold, or look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nobody knew who Jesus was until that moment in the Jordan River. John introduced him as the Lamb of God. And every Jew knew what he was talking about because every Jew, every year, reenacted the Passover as they still do today. And so when he says that the message they heard was of no value to them is not the message of how to become a Christian or the equivalent thereof. It's not the message of how to come out of Egypt. The message that was of no value of them, to them was that God had a place for them that was flown with milk and honey where everything they would ever need would be available to them. A journey that Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 2 tells us should have taken them or could have taken them only 11 days 11-day journey from Horeb, which is where God met Moses at the burning bush, to Kadesh Barnea, which was the southern tip of, Jordan, uh, of Canaan. But instead, as you will know, it took them 40 years going round in circles with a message that was of no value to them. And I meet all over the place, and uh, I am privileged to travel widely, as well as ministering to the folks of the People's Church, and I meet every size and shape and smell of Christian that you could imagine. 
And uh, I sit with many, as I did this week, with somebody who said, in effect, I've been a Christian for 15 years, but it doesn't work. The truths that I read in this book are very exciting, and I love them, but they just don't work. They don't become experiential to me. And writing about that, what the writer of the Hebrews says is the message they heard was of no value because those who heard did not combine it with faith. In other words, truth in itself doesn't do you any good unless it is combined, or as one translation puts it, mixed with faith. Let me talk about that just for these few minutes. I think if we were to compile a list of misunderstood words in the Bible, probably the word faith would be one of the most misunderstood words. And yet, when you read the New Testament, you can't get away from the fact that the Christian life operates on the basis of faith. It tells us that we're cleansed by faith, we're justified by faith, we're saved by faith. You recognize those quotations from the New Testament. In other words, if you're going to become a Christian, it's on the grounds of faith. Having become a Christian by faith, we're then to walk by faith, we're to live by faith, we're to be sanctified by faith, we're to fight the fight of faith, we're to take the shield of faith, we overcome the world by faith, we ask in faith, we have access to God through faith, we draw near in full assurance, of faith. Those are all quotations from the New Testament. In other words, having become a Christian by faith, the only way we can be the Christian we have become is by faith. To the extent, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. And Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. That tells me two things about faith. One, faith is important. <laughs> Every part of the Christian life operates on the basis of faith. Secondly, it tells me this. If I have a Christian life that doesn't work, there may be many facets to this, but in all likelihood, a key ingredient will be I've never learned to live by faith. Well, what does that mean? Let me define the word. Uh, let me define it negatively, if I may. I mean, people have all kinds of weird and wonderful ideas about what faith is. Some people think it's some kind of mystical power where if you close your eyes and you really, really, really believe something strongly enough, your believing it is going to make it happen. And uh, I remember once at a conference in England I was going to speak at, and it was, uh, yeah, we were all living in the, in the conference center. The, the actual uh, meeting place was a separate building. And uh, it was a typical English summer's day. It was raining. And I was running to avoid getting wet. And I caught up with a man and his wife walking under a large umbrella. And I said, do you mind if I walk under your umbrella with you? And they said, not at all. So simply as a conversation piece, I said to them, it's going to be a miserable day today, isn't it? And the lady turned to me and said, don't say that. I said, why not? She said, you should say it's going to be a beautiful day today. I said, but it isn't. It's been raining all night. It's raining now. The sky is black. The forecast is it'll rain all day. Probably all week. Could be all months. Might be all summer. She said, but you should say it's going to be a beautiful day. You should say the clouds are going to blow away. You should say the sun will come out and we'll get a suntan. I said, why? She said, that's faith. That isn't faith. That's foolishness. You can stand in a rainstorm, believe what you like, and the rain will take no notice. <laughs> but I know some people almost having nervous breakdowns trying to believe that black is white and pink is yellow and all the rest of it. What you believe, by the way, is never the most important thing about you. The most important thing is knowing what is true. <laughs> but somehow we have this idea that faith is this sort of subjective 
really, really, really believe it strong enough, you'll make it happen. And uh, uh, folks have the idea, faith is a, is a subject for facts. As long as you've got your facts, you're okay, and you're secure, but when you get to the end of your facts, this is where you need faith. Faith is leaping out in the dark and believing something you can't prove and hoping it's true. And if it is, you're in luck, and if it isn't, you're in trouble. But whereas it's true, we are called upon to believe things we can't prove in any objective scientific manner. You can't prove to your neighbor that God is and say, here's the evidence, bang, conclusive. But as a definition of faith, that is wholly inadequate for the simple reason faith has to be in something. Faith has to have an object. You can't just have faith on its own. It has to have an object. It's like love. Love has to have an object. If you met a 16-year-old girl whose knees were knocking and her eyes were rolling and she was giddy and off her food, and you said, what's the matter with you? Supposing she said, oh, I'm all in love. You say, really? Who are you in love with? Nobody. I'm just in love. Can you just be in love with nobody? Of course you can't. Love has to have an object. It might be a cat or a car or a teddy bear or a person. It doesn't matter. But Love has to have an object. So it is with faith. Faith has to be in something. You can't just have faith. It has to be in something. And the object in which we place our faith is the all-important thing which determines the validity of the faith. Our faith is never more valid than the object in which we place it. So if I put a lot of faith in some thin ice and very commonly stepped onto thin ice, what's going to happen? Well, I'll tell you. I will sink by faith. What's the problem? Is the problem my faith or is it the ice? Well, of course, it's the ice. All the faith in the world will make up for thin ice. On the other hand, I could put a little bit of faith in some thick ice and very nervously, with a rope tied around the nearest tree and a life belt around my waist, having written a note to my wife saying, if I don't come home, I'll be under the ice. Goodbye, it's been nice knowing you. And I nervously step onto the thick ice. What happens? I walk on the ice. Because I had more faith? No, I may have had less faith. But because the object in which I placed my faith was stronger. Because faith, and here's a definition if you like, faith is a disposition of trust in an object for the purpose of allowing the object to work on my behalf. In other words, the evidence of our faith is never seen in what we do for the object. It is only ever seen in what the object of our faith is doing for us. You put faith on that seat a few minutes ago and you sat down at the end of the singing and uh, you didn't think about it, you automatically know these seats are made to hold you and they've probably held you before. So you, as, a, as an act of faith, you sat on the seats and you allowed your body to come crashing down. And right now, most of you are this shape. One or two of you are more like that, but that's okay. Most of you are this shape. And uh, what's holding you in that position is the seat in which you put your faith. You sat as an act of faith, but what's holding you there is not your faith. It's the seat. If you're not sure, do an experiment. When everybody else is gone, if it's possible, and it probably isn't, take away the seat and sit on your face and see what happens. And you'll discover your faith is totally useless. Unless it's placed in an object for the purpose of allowing the object to do something for you. You put faith in a car, you let the car take you down the road. You put faith in an airplane, let the airplane fly through the air. You don't do anything for the airplane. You can go to sleep. The airplane does something for you. You put faith in God, God does something. Now, the problem with the Israelites that he's writing about here is that having allowed God to bring them out of Egypt, and they knew God had delivered them, they knew unmistakably, read Exodus 15, when they had that great song about how God had delivered them and brought them through the Red Sea, and it was all God, 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 God. Nothing about Moses, nothing about tactics, nothing about techniques. It's all what God did, and they knew that. But now, to cross the wilderness and enter into Canaan, when they sent spies, the spies came back and said, the giants in the land, the place is too big, they live in fortified cities, 
We could never take them on. We could never do it. They thought in terms not of what God might do, but in terms of what they would do. At least 10 of them did. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, God will give us the land. And they said, Joshua, don't be so spiritual. You've got to be practical about these things. And they turned back, you remember. And what the writer is saying here is this, that it is possible to have truth that does you no good unless it is mixed with faith. In other words, on the basis of what God has said, here's the question, what is God going to do, not what do I have to do? Because essentially, the Christian life is not about what we do for God. It's about what God does for us, in us, and through us. You know, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he, he, he said to him in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1, he said, you foolish Galatians, which wasn't a very nice way to write to them, but that's what he said. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And then he asked this question. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Now, what's the answer to that question? Do you receive the Spirit by keeping the rules, observing the law, or do you see the Spirit by believing? That is, by faith. Well, you know the answer. They knew the answer. He just told them a few verses before. We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Just five or six verses before he's told them that. So he knows to know the answer. So do you see the Spirit by, by observing the law or by believing what you heard? They know the answer. It's by believing. It's by faith. Are you so foolish then? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? In other words, he says, you fools, you big twits, as we would say in England. You've received the Spirit by faith, but now your Christian life has become you trying to live for God. And you can no more live for God than you can, uh, and, and be a Christian than you can become a Christian by your own ability in the first place. It is a life every day of dependence upon him, of God doing in us what is impossible for us to do for ourselves. That doesn't mean we become passive. Of course, we're active in obedience. But it is dependence upon the life of God himself that's been implanted within us. In the next verse, he says, consider Abraham. Or in verse 6, he says, consider Abraham. And uh, just very briefly, I think Abraham's a very good example of this. Because you remember when Abraham was 75 years of age, God said to him, Abraham, look up into the sky. How many stars can you see? And Abraham said, I don't know what he said, but he probably said lots. How many grains of sand are there on the seashore? Lots and lots. Abraham, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to have a son, and from that son will come a nation of as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, and uh, that nation will bless the world. Well, Abraham was 75. He was married to Sarah, who was 65. They had no children. They'd been married for donkey's years, so it wasn't for want of trying. It was just it didn't work. In any case, she's long past the menopause now. She's 65. He's 75. But it says Abraham believed God, which is remarkable. God, you said it, you do it, which is what it means to believe God. He went home and told Sarah, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall when Abraham came home with this bit of information, <laughs> because the Bible isn't complimentary about either of them. This is about Abraham twice. It says, and him as good as dead. So he wasn't a healthy 75-year-old. He was as good as dead. And it says about Sarah, she was worn out. I don't know why, because she had no kids, but she was worn out. So maybe <laughs> too much, I don't know, potato picking, whatever she used to do. And I can imagine Abraham coming home, all worn out, and there's Sarah. Uh, he's, he's as good as dead, rather. There's Sarah, all worn out, lying on the beanbag, wherever she used to lie. Uh, and Abraham saying, Sarah? Yes? 
God spoke to me today, and what did he say? He's going to give us something. Really, what's he going to give us? Uh, you have to guess. I can't guess. Yeah, it begins with B. B. Another beanbag? No, no, nothing back. He's going to give us a baby. And it says Sarah believed him. I think that's remarkable. And she started knitting and painting the room, whatever ladies do when you give them that information. And uh, waited. Three months went by, six months went by, nine months went by. How are you feeling, Sarah? Are you putting a weight at all? No. Two years went by. Nothing happening. You're not getting, you know, eating funny combinations like bananas and onions in the same dish? No. <laughs> Three, five years went by, seven years, ten years went by. Abraham was 85, even deader, presumably. She was 75, even more worn out. And it was Sarah who brought up the subject in Genesis 16. She said, Abraham, did you tell me God told you were going to have a baby? Well, yes, he did. You sure it was God who told you that? Well, yes, it was God who told me that. What were you eating that night? You sure it wasn't the blue cheese or something? No, it wasn't the cheese. God told me. Well, where's the baby, Abraham? I don't know, Sarah. Maybe God didn't know how worn out you were. Well, maybe he didn't know how dead you were, Abraham. Whatever the reason, there's no baby, so they decide to help God out. It's always a disaster when you try to help God out. And they committed themselves to do the will of God. It was Sarah's idea. We've got the maid, Hagar. They've been to Egypt, by the way, so it's just an aside. They've been to Egypt out of the will of God. And they came back fairly quickly. But whenever you go out of the will of God, make sure you don't bring back baggage, because you usually do. And they brought back an Egyptian maid. Young, fertile, within the culture of the day. This was not unusual. You have the baby through the maid, Hagar. Hagar gave birth to Abraham's son. They called him Ishmael. Everyone's been thrilled to bits. At last, we've got a little baby boy. God, <laughs> sorry I didn't think about Hagar before. I was thinking about Sarah. I know she's all worn out and dead and all the rest of it. But anyway, we got the baby at last. Must have been thrilled. 13 years later, when Abraham was 99, Sarah was 89, God said, Abraham, yes. As far as we know, the first time God spoke to him in 24 years. Remember I told you to have a baby? Yeah. He's outside playing football. He's called Ishmael. He's 13 now. No, Abraham, this time next year, your wife will give birth to a son. What? Your wife will give birth to a son. And on the very day, it says, Sarah gave birth on the very day God had said. Now Abraham has two sons. He has uh, Ishmael and he has Isaac. You remember the story when God told Abraham to offer Isaac in sacrifice. Have you ever noticed the deliberate mistake God made in Genesis 22 when he told him to offer his son? He said this, God said, take your son, your only son Isaac whom you love and offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Do you notice the deliberate mistake? Take your son, your only son. Abraham could well have said, God, he's not my only son. I've got two sons. Well, God knew that. Of course God knew that. Why did God call Isaac Abraham's only son when he had two sons? Well, Galatians 4 and verse 22 tells us because what it says there is this. In Galatians 4 verse 22, it says, uh, it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman by Hagar and by Sarah. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way. What that means, this is nothing unusual about an old man and a young woman, that happens. When Ishmael was born and the local gossips met together in the local supermarket and said, hey, have you heard there's a baby in Abraham's household? Really? Yeah. Who's the mother? Hagar. Oh, really? The maid? Yeah. You mean Abraham and the maid? Yeah. Juicy bit of gossip. Nobody's confused about it. It happens. 
So he was born in the ordinary way. But his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. So when Isaac was born to Sarah and the local gossips in the supermarket said, have you heard there's another baby in Abraham's household? Really? Yeah, who's the mother this time? Uh, Sarah. No, no, not the grandmother. She's ancient. No, no, she's the mother. What's the explanation? God did something. You see, you can explain Ishmael in terms of what Abraham did for God. You can only explain Isaac in terms of what God did for Abraham. And the point that Paul is making in Galatians is as long as we think that any aspect of the Christian life is simply me doing it for God, it'll be barren. We may produce Ishmael so the neighbors think we got a kid and it looks okay. But it's not the real thing. But the Christian life is a life of complete dependence upon God. Now there's obedience, active obedience. And I, I sometimes say obedience and dependence are the two essential ingredients of the Christian life. Obeying what he says, and in that context, trusting him, knowing that we can do nothing of any lasting value. As Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can make a lot of noise. You can be very busy. You can be sweating like a pig. No, pigs don't sweat. Sweat like a whatever, sweat like. But you won't accomplish anything unless it's in dependence upon the Spirit of God. Obedience and dependence like two wings on an airplane. Which wing on an airplane is the most important one? The left or the right? <laughs> well, of course, if you have obedience without dependence, you just have legalism. And it's utterly frustrating and lifeless. If you have dependence without obedience, you get unhealthy kinds of mysticism. But you have obedience with dependence, obeying what he says, that's our part, depending on who he is, that God himself is an ingredient in what's going on. We get dynamism and we fly. And so the issue here in Hebrews 4 is that these Israelites had a message which was true but of no value because they didn't combine it with faith. And uh, as I said at the beginning, one of the reasons that you're here, no doubt, is to pursue truth. Um, you may want to pursue a girlfriend as well, but that's not the disclosed reason. The disclosed reason is to pursue truth. But truth in itself will not do you any good. And that's why everything we learn from the Word of God, we say, God, thank you for this, but I cannot do this by myself. And you never said I could. You said, without me, you can do nothing. But you live in me, and it is on you that I depend, that I obey and I trust. I obey and I trust. When I was a kid in Sunday school, we had a song that said, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's not a kid's truth. That's the real truth, even though it was a kid's song. Trust and obey, those two things go together. And if you simply accumulate information and knowledge without allowing God himself to be at work in you that through you that truth becomes life-giving like the Israelites will go around in the wilderness with a message that is of no value. Well, it's time to stop. I'm halfway through, but it's time to stop. I'll give the other half another day. <laughs> Five years' time, whatever. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful, so grateful this morning that you're not just alive in heaven, but you're the God in heaven above and on the earth below, your word tells us. 
and we worship you as God in heaven and we thank you for your supremacy and your sovereignty and your authority. But thank you that you're the God on earth too. You're the God who lives in us, who's made our bodies the dwelling place of your Holy Spirit, not just for somewhere to go, but for somewhere to live, that you might live in us a life that we could never live ourselves. We might be energized, directed, empowered by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And we pray that we'll be men and women of faith. We recognize and we acknowledge without faith, we cannot please you. Whatever's not of faith is sin. Whatever doesn't derive from dependence on you derives from independence of you, which is by nature sin. And we pray that we'll be men and women who love you, who trust you, who experience you deeply in our hearts and lives. And out of that, live a life by which a river flows that blesses other people. Make this real for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.